The Athletic. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. I'm Mark Chapman. Coming up a little later in the pod, we'll discuss Antonio Conte's future at Tottenham ahead of a huge North London derby against Arsenal this week. And we'll speak to our Italian football writer, James Horncastle, about the two Milan teams battling for the Serie A title race. First up, though, on the pod, uh, we're joined by the Athletics' David Ornstein and Adam Crafton. Two big stories about the futures of two big players in your column this week. David, uh, Erling Haaland, first up, that's a done deal, yes? Yeah, the way it's been described to me, Mark, is that this situation is done and dusted now. By that, we don't mean it's completed, but Erling Haaland is going to be signing for Manchester City. We initially reported, I think it was last month, that initial personal terms had been agreed between City and Haaland, and it just needed to be formalised and finalised and put into ink. That part of things is now complete. So all that needs to be done is City paying the release clause, conducting medicals and that sort of thing. And therefore, it's more of a formality. The main hurdle was the the personal terms and, and the rest will follow in due course. The clubs have been in contact and the vibe I get from sources in Germany is that Dortmund, perhaps somewhat surprisingly, have viewed that as being cordial so far. They can't really do much about the situation, to be fair. And that Dortmund expect in the coming days to receive notification from City of City's intention to activate the release clause in Erling Haaland's contract. Uh, And once that happens, it will escalate very quickly and announcements will have to be made. And that's why confirmation, as things stand, is expected this week. And it will all lead to Erling Haaland becoming a Manchester City player uh, once you're able to register and link up with them for pre-season. And um, the end of that saga is nigh. And the end of uh, all those debates and endless discussions about City needing a striker is done, Adam. Yeah, and actually I think Pep the whole time has wanted a striker. Um, he wanted Harry Kane last summer and then he wanted Cristiano Ronaldo and now he's getting Erling Haaland. So I think he's probably got the best of the best option for you know for both himself and City's long-term future there. I do think one of the interesting things which I saw reported a couple of weeks ago, I think it was in the Times, was this idea that City have been saying to Haaland, because of his age, was he 21, 22? 21, yeah. 21. They almost said to him, look, I mean, you can go and play for Real Madrid in the future, but come to Man City first, come and have three or four fantastic years here. Actually, a bit like PSG are now trying to say to Mbappe, do a couple more years with us, and then you can you can go to Real Madrid in your mid twenties when you're ready to. And but what struck me is City throughout the the, the uh, Abu Dhabi ownership years, they've never lost a player that they really wanted to keep. Leroy Sane is probably the only one that was somewhere in, in the balance there. But I think even by the time he left, they weren't devastated to lose him. Do you do you think there is a sense of that in this deal, David? That you know, he, he comes for three or four years and then eventually if Barcelona sort themselves out financially or Real Madrid, that there's there's more than one move in this for Erling Haaland. Yeah, I do, Adam. I think that's a really good point. It's been touched upon in various parts of the media over the last few weeks and months. And it's clearly one of City's trump cards in this situation. Now, they will hope to keep hold of him for much longer if it goes well. There have been suggestions of a release clause being one of the negotiating points. So we'll have to 
wait and see on the detail of that in what I think will be the days ahead now rather than the weeks. Yeah, that will be designed to potentially satisfy the long-held desire of Erling Haaland to represent Real Madrid, which has been quite well documented, a bit of a dream of his. And I think the view was that if he goes there now, he's not going to make a move elsewhere. He's, he's there for life in the sort of Benzema style, could be his successor. Um, whereas coming to City, yeah, it could be a bit of a stepping stone. I think that would have been important for his representatives as well. It was a feature of Mino Raiola's career as a intermediary agent before his sad death recently. And so, yeah, I, I think that would definitely be a ploy in it. There'll be a lot linked to Pep Guardiola as well, I'm sure. His contract expires in 2023. There have been some murmurings that there could be talks over a new contract, although City have kind of steered us away from that. You never know if that means it is properly happening. So yeah, there, there are a lot of sort of moving parts in this, even once he comes. But finally, it satisfies that desire you mentioned of Pep Guardiola to bring in a, a striker, a top striker, but a very different style to what City have had before. So I think it might take some time to integrate him. He needs to get over his injury problems as well. Uh, but one thing I think City will be very pleased about is that this overall package, despite the inevitable high agents, commissions, salary and a sizable transfer fee, it's lower than you would have paid for Erling Haaland on the open market. Um, and at 22, he could have a number of his best years at City, despite what we're saying about potential future moves. I think they'll be pretty chipper about this from a financial and footballing perspective. But Paul Pogba won't be joining him. No, Paul Pogba is not going to be signing for Manchester City. So we reveal in the Monday column that that possibility, which broke on Friday night in the Daily Mail and uh, was a genuine option for Manchester City. It was proposed to them. They um, entertained it. Uh, came up with a proposal, uh, but it is not going to be advancing. And Paul Pogba's representatives have now informed Manchester City that despite this flattering offer, they are going to accept a package, a, a sort of a whole package that is more uh, suitable for them at a different club. Now, we don't know who that club is now because I don't think a final decision has been made, but there's serious interest, we understand, from Juventus, where he's shone before, of course, uh, Paris Saint-Germain and Real Madrid. A number of people I speak to in the game think it's going to be Juventus. I mean, it raised a fascinating prospect, didn't it? And um, uh, you get the sense that Paul Pogba would have probably had a real point to prove and, and shone for City. And Pep Guardiola, you wouldn't have bet against him getting the best out of him. City are looking to fill that position with Fernandinho expected to leave when his contract expires this summer. But sorry to spoil the party if some people were looking forward to this. It's not going to be happening. Who is representing Paul Pogba at this stage? Obviously, following the death of Mina Raiola, his agent, over the last couple of weeks, who is actually doing these negotiations and speaking to clubs on Pogba's behalf? Yeah, there was a small but solid team around Mina Raiola. And even though he was the dominant force in that and very close to players like Pogba, Ibrahimovic, Haaland. You've got Rafaela Pimento, I think is how you pronounce her surname. Uh, apologies if I've got that wrong, but Rafaela is well known throughout the game, very trusted, impressive. She's a lawyer, right? A lawyer who's a, a good operator and, and leads the negotiations. And it's probable that during discussions over Haaland, the Pogba question came up because it's in the same stable. And there are a number of other people involved, but not many. It was a tight 
unit compared to some of the other even smaller agencies who have more people, but certainly than the bigger agencies. And I guess she'll take it on. I don't know exactly what form. Mina Ryla has a brother. I don't know about his level of involvement in this sort of thing. And it will ask questions about whether some of those clients might move on. We've seen and reported in my Monday column recently that uh, Marcus Turan switched to a new agent. He was one of Mino Raiola's. I don't know the exact reasons behind that. It could have been nothing to do with his passing. But I'm sure given how central he was to the careers and lives of some of these players, they were largely there because of him, whether they'll look to seek pastures new but yeah um in the cases of Pogba and Haaland um they're still in there although with Haaland of course his father has played an increasingly prominent role our finger and um perhaps that's part of the reason why he's ending up at City just a final one on Pogba Adam you'd have to say Juventus makes the most sense doesn't it? I mean, could, could you see him at PSG, for example? I could see him at PSG. I don't, the impression I've had from PSG is they aren't desperate to do it, that they, you know, they're interested. If he accepts an offer from them, then great. If not, I don't think they'll be devastated. I mean, PSG had conversations with members of Pogba's entourage as far back as last summer when there was a real possibility. This was before they went and signed Messi that they actually would just buy out Pogba's contract and sign him for Manchester United on a kind of 25, 30 million deal, which would have given Man United a bit of money back. Those talks didn't get that far. And it was mostly because the Messi deal happened and um, that, that was it really for PSG that summer. There was always this feeling that, well, if he runs his contract down, then we can look again. And that has been PSG's model when you look at, you know, they signed Messi on a three, they signed Donnarumma on a three. Uh, Sergio Ramos was on a three, Wijnaldum was on a three. So their strategy over the last few years has been you either sign young players for 60-odd million like Hakimi or you take established players on a three but obviously on very, very high wages and commissions. And I don't think it's impossible that 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 deal happens. But Juventus, I think it depends what Paul Pogba wants. If Paul Pogba wants to go to an environment where he feels loved again, and feels respected. I think he's probably most likely to get that at Juventus. I think at PSG, there would be other appealing aspects to it. If Mbappe was to go, then he'd be the main French player in a Parisian team. I think that should appeal to him, in a world, particularly in a World Cup year as well. But I think it'll also mean a greater level of scrutiny upon him from the French media. And a lot of the things that he's been criticised for at Manchester United, he's also been criticised for in the French media over the years. And I know... There is this real perception that Paul Pogba for France is a completely different player to Manchester United. And that's true in some games. But it's also true that, you know, a couple of weeks before the 2018 World Cup, I think there was a survey in one of the leading front in, in L'Equipe and a high percentage of French football fans didn't want Pogba to start at that World Cup. So that perception shifted over time. But I, I do agree with David. I think the, the Juventus option, if what Pogba wants is an environment where he can flourish be respected be loved and really have a crack at his football again which we've not really spoken about for a few years then it might be the best bet for him david thank you very much subscribers to the athletic can read david's monday column you can hear all about it on the app or exclusively on apple Podcasts for just 99p per month
Well, Tottenham held Liverpool at Anfield at the weekend, but they lost ground in the race for Champions League qualification with Arsenal, who they face in the North London derby on Thursday. Jack Pitt-Brook covers Tottenham, joins us now. Um, it felt like a moral victory, actually, didn't it, Jack? Kind of, kind. Of. I mean, it's not it's not a great result for Tottenham's pursuit of fourth because they'll they need to beat Arsenal. And they need Arsenal to fail to win one of their other games, uh, which are against Newcastle and Everton. And frankly, if Everton are going to be safe on the final day, as it looks likely, maybe that game becomes easier for Arsenal. And so they're really relying on Newcastle United to get something against Arsenal. So, but that all said. I think Tottenham can take a huge amount of pride from this. You know, I thought they played really well. I thought they created the better chances. I thought they would have been at least probably worthier winners of the game than Liverpool overall. And they've had a big say in the title race. I don't know how much that will matter to Tottenham fans, but I'm sure for Conte and his ego, being able to annoy Jurgen Klopp and is, is hugely important to him, I imagine. I mean, I take the point that it obviously leaves them short a little bit in the, in the race with Arsenal, but... It still feels like in the main, there's an upwards trajectory when the problems came earlier on in the season, some of them under Conte himself, but before Conte as well. Yeah, it is absolutely further proof of the fact that I think Tottenham have been the third best team in the country since Conte came in. I think that's borne out by the points and goals they've got as well. It, pro- it probably won't be enough before, though it might be. But, you know, they were managed by Nuno Espirito Santo until the end of October. Uh, and like you say, it, you know, it took them quite a while under Conte to really get going. And even then, they've dropped stupid points. Like, you know, those Brentford and, and Brighton games a few weeks ago are probably going to be what cost them fourth. But you're right, their overall trajectory is positive. The fact that they've, they've beaten City away, they nearly beat Liverpool away, they got a good point there, does prove that, you know, they've got a higher level now than I think any other team in the country outside the top two. I think you're right. I think there's also a sense of a missed opportunity for Spurs in some of those games you mentioned, you know, Burnley away as well. Um, before that, there was other games as well where they dropped points. And when you think that they've not had any European football to contend with, you know, since the um, second half of the season, then I think, you know, it's not it's not a brilliant Arsenal team that's going to finish fourth. Um and it's an Arsenal team that, that I like that's on a bit of a trajectory, which I can say. Um, <laughs> and, um, and there's momentum behind them. But you watch them in periods of games and you think they could be caught, they could be caught out in a game. So I do think, you know, that Spurs will be looking at this and just thinking, oh, we, we probably should have done this. But actually, if you take the season as a whole, I think probably Arsenal as a club sort of deserve it more for having that sense of plan and direction and faith in what they were doing. What does this summer look like for Conte and transfer plans if they don't make top four? Well, if they don't make top four, I think the there's two questions. One is, what other offers will Conte get? You know, Conte's been very clear so far that he doesn't want to commit himself to staying for next season. Uh, I think he does want to keep his options open. The other, but at the same time, Daniel Levy is desperate for Conte to stay and desperate to prove to Conte that Tottenham is the right place for him. So I'm sure Tottenham will still try and be as ambitious as finances would allow them to be. There's ton, you know, there's lots that they want to do in the squad. They want a left centre back, two wing backs, midfielder, centre forward. 
Um, so there's a lot to be done in the market. I guess the big question really is, is the whole package, whether it's you know, Champions League football, signings, all the rest of it, will that be enough to keep Conte or to, to make Conte think this is the right place for him to stay? To be honest, I think this week will be a big step in the right direction in the sense that I think Conte's loved this week. He spent a whole week preparing for a game against the best team in the world. He's got to go face-to-face, as he puts it, up against Jurgen Klopp at Anfield. He's got a good result. He's, to use the language of the internet, rattled Jurgen Klopp, as was made clear by what Klopp said to our colleague Charlie Eccleshare at the post-match press conference, criticising Conte's tactics. And Conte might well be thinking, look, you know, I could go to PSG in the summer, but it's not quite as fun rattling Bruno Genesio and Christophe Galtier in Ligue 1 next season, so maybe I should stay at Tottenham and get to get, and get to compete with Pep and, Pep and Klopp for another year. What do you think of that, Adam? Um, I agree. Uh, the, the thing that's, that's always struck me since Conte arrived at Tottenham, it, it's a little bit as though he went there sort of completely oblivious to what Tottenham is and what Tottenham's capacity is and what they're able to do financially. And, and part of me thinks sometimes he's actually just trying to push them and play that game and... Every time, you know, always a little bit of interest in PSG. Well, that might get him an extra 20 million quid in the transfer window and one player further on. Um, But, like, he's not going to win the league at Spurs. That's not going to happen. He will not win the league at Tottenham. So it then becomes, is he prepared to psychologically adapt to making Tottenham into a team that finishes in the top four, which is what I think they're capable of doing next season pretty comfortably if they go about it the right way? And can they have a go? in in cup competitions and Antonio Conte needs to decide is that something I'm happy doing or am I just going to agitate every time a result goes against me because I think I do think at some point Spurs fans will become very tired of that I think it's quite it it can become quite insulting and tedious I think for a fan base when when you have someone at the club who just constantly sees themselves as as above you there's a difference between being challenging and demanding and being that little bit demeaning yeah, I think that's a really good point. I definitely think Tottenham fans don't, you know, I think Tottenham fans really appreciate what Conte's done for the team on the pitch and how competitive they are and how they feel, you know, they're now, I think, better and improving more than at any point since the kind of peak Pochettino years, uh, you know, at least four years ago. But they don't have infinite patience for this whole, oh, I think this thing, I, I think I'm above all this. And Conte does keep saying in press conferences how hard it is for him to accept, you know, being, you know, uh, just competing for a place in the top four and that being the limit of their ambition. That all said, I think he does... I think you've got to put all of that... That's on one side of the scale. The other side of the scale is he just loves competing. He loves training the players. He loves getting to work with good players. He loves being up against other, you know, the other best managers and best teams in the world. And Conte is just the best example of the fact that the Premier League is just where these managers want to be. And of course, you know, it, it would be nice to be winning trophies somewhere else perhaps, but... The, the lure of the Premier League is so much that actually the Tottenham job is, is still quite attractive to, to someone like Conte. Um, do you think Klopp's comments were fair? No, not really. I mean, I don't think they were a big surprise because we have heard this sort of thing from Klopp before. Like, he, he has criticised other teams for not rolling over and letting Liverpool beat them. But it, it's not up to him how other teams play. Uh, no, exactly. And But... To a certain extent, those comments are as old as time, aren't they, Jack? Not necessarily from Klopp, but from, you know, big big sides going for the title, playing football at its peak, complaining about sides coming to 
their stadium and try not to lose. I mean, I mean, strangely enough, it has happened over the decade. Yeah, I definitely remember it with Arsene Wenger. I remember, do you remember the Gerard? I think it's after the Gerard Slip game. I think that Brendan Rodgers said that defensive football isn't difficult to coach. The old park the bus from Mourinho. I mean, M- M- Mourinho. I think Chelsea drew against West Ham. Sam Allardyce is West Ham, and he sort yeah. of said something like, "West Ham were playing football from the 18th century." Um, yeah. which was like yeah. incredible irony from Mourinho. Yeah, so there's a rich history of this sort of thing in English football and uh, I don't I don't I don't think it's bad like I don't have any objection to it. it I, I mainly think it's actually quite funny having managers talk, say this sort of thing after a, after a bad game. It shows how human they are. Which sort of uh, brings us on to uh, because you've also written about Manchester United uh, Jack over the weekend which also brings on to what football are Manchester United playing? That's a great question. Um, just a weird, an incredibly sort of, I don't know, disaggregated football really is probably the only word I can come up with it. Like it's amazing that you know these group of players have played together the whole season. They've played, most of them have been together for years. And yet they're like the opposite of a team. They look like they've never met before. There's no idea, there's no ethos, there's no plan, there's no identity. And some, you know, conceding four goals to Brighton, I mean, it should have, a few years ago it would have been shocking, but now it's like, well, you know, they did concede four goals to Watford a few months ago. Yeah. I cannot think of any team in the top flight who feels like they've fallen off a cliff in the way that Manchester, and I'm not just talking about Premier League, I'm going back to starting to watch in the, in the early 80s, and I'm not just talking about United. I can't think of, I can't think of a team Maybe that Derby side that got relegated with three points or whatever they got relegated, but I, but I can't think of anybody a side that has looked so demoralised and has just utterly collapsed. I mean, it. I mean, it. It is. I mean, even Manchester United fans find it comical in some ways. The one time I can think of for a bigger collapse than this was actually what Conte called the Mourinho season, which was oh, yeah. Chelsea 2015-16 yeah. when they had to sack Mourinho just before Christmas. But they weren't getting battered every week. They were losing. No, not as badly as this. In hindsight, that was like a weird blip in the sense that Chelsea won the league the previous season and the following season. But that year, they just collapsed. Whereas United seems to be on this, you know, inc- kind of downward spiral for... And somehow, every time you think, oh, it can never get worse than this, this has to be the Nadir... And then there's another another Nadia next week. I think from the moment they went out of the Champions League against Atletico Madrid, it feels like they threw the towel in. And to be honest, I mean, we say that about the players. I think really actually since then, even the head coach has looked pretty disengaged and uh, deactivated from the job as well. And, you know, I think he's done very well at sort of pointing fingers upwards, downwards. But, you know... He's been very handsomely paid for a six-month job, and it's been a disaster. One thing I was wondering is, given how bad how bad they've been in the last few weeks, to, do you, do you think it's at the point it will be difficult for the players to flick the switch on Ten Hag's first day when they're whenever they're back for pre-season in July or whatever, and be competitive again? I know I'm, I'm not. I don't think there'll be a because I think it will have a freshness about it. I think because a lot of people will have gone and I think, you know, there might be some of the young players who are out on loan at the moment who come back and will feel that they might have a chance under Ten Hag. So I think that might have a freshness about it. I think it might be harder for the fans to flick a switch and suddenly start to like some of these players again who at the moment, in the main 
maybe with the odd exception, a deeply, deeply unpopular. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true. I also think, I think United as a club, I say this as a club, as a team, when you watch them play, the idea of connections has just completely disappeared, whether that's connections between your right back and your right winger or your two central midfielders or the players and a coach or the players and the fans or the coach and a fans. And I, and and I'm not talking about, you know, that sort of Solskjaer thing of, oh, they just need to get it. We, everyone needs to get it. It's more, this, does this club have a, have a relevant story to tell? Is there something to feel invested in? Is there something to buy into? Does it have a soul? Does it, have, yeah. does it I mean, I know we're getting quite, we're romanticising it, but at the moment, does it have a soul for the fans to love? But, but it's what Liverpool did brilliantly under Klopp in those first couple of seasons mm. when they weren't winning anything. They were lost final. They lost the Europa League final. You know, people always talk about, don't they, they drew against West Brom and he's got them hand- holding hands in front of the cup. But yeah. I don't think that would work at Manchester United per se, but it was building that connection between the players, between the staff and the players, between the fans and the players. And that's what they've got to do. They have to find a way to rebuild a culture and a spirit again because if they don't do that they've got no chance that's why I, I kind of thought that maybe Pochettino would be the better option than oh, Hag is because <laughs> Ten, Ten Hag is obviously Ten Hag is obviously a fantastic coach and they've done really well but in terms of generating that sense yeah. of connection and you know the buzzword in football is alignment mm. between the fan base the dressing room the boardroom the dugout like that's really what Pochettino did so magically well at Tottenham and Tottenham obviously haven't really had that since, or you know, for a long time before then. And I, my own view, maybe maybe slightly coloured by my experience at Tottenham, is that Pochettino could, was the big enough figure to have done that at Manchester United. Whereas for all of Ten Hag's kind of coaching brilliance, I think it's you know an open question to say the least whether he will be able to generate that same connection, that same alignment at Man United. And Arsenal have been very good at that this season as well exactly. in terms of just giving a sense of direction and feeling of hope. Good to have you on, Jack. Thank you. See you soon. See you soon. Cheers, guys. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Okay, next on the pod, let's talk to James Horncastle, who covers the Italian football for The Athletic. This is a good title race, this, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably the best chapters since 2008. That was one that went down to the final day. This one could as well. I suppose in, in 2008, you know, sort of Mancini's Inter kind of capitulated a little bit um, in that Mancini 
back when he used to lose his temper uh, a lot, kind of resigned after they lost to Liverpool in the Champions League and lost the dressing room and they spiralled a little bit. But this this one is different. This is two teams that have been really going at it from start to finish. Uh, this season, you've got Inter who were champions, but people thought could fall away after Conte walked out on them. Lukaku was sold, Hakimi and Eriksen went as well. And then uh, an AC Milan side, which is kind of greater than the sum of its parts, has been on a good trajectory for the last 18 months, but you know maybe uh, would still exceed expectation if they were to win the title. So two points between them with two to go. Inter have, Inter have the slightly easier... Of the of the games, do they? They do. They they go to Cagliari at the weekend, and then they play Sampdoria. Um, now, I suppose the only problem is is, is both of those teams find themselves in a, a relegation battle, which is every bit as compelling as the title race. Because at the moment, no one has been relegated. Um, six teams down the bottom um, could still find themselves going down. Uh, but you look at Milan's running and it, it does look harder. They, they play Atalanta at San Siro um, next week and then they play Sassuolo, who have typically been a bogey team for them. But what you would you would say in, in, in Milan's favour is that their, their record this season against the, the top sides has actually been where they've, they've been better than their rivals, I suppose. Um, where they've dropped points has been uh, against teams in the bottom half of the table, uh, teams you'd least expect them. You know, they drop points against Salernitana, Spezia. Um, and one of their best performances of the season came away in Bergamo against Atalanta when they were 3-0 up and ended up winning 3-2. So uh, there's a lot of positivity around Milan. You know, after their come-from-behind win on, on Sunday night against Hellas Verona, um, Stefano Pioli, the manager, said that it would be like coming full circle if they were to win the league this weekend against Atalanta because... The cycle really started when they they got battered by Atalanta five nil, and there were people were thinking, okay, Pioli's not going to last long. Uh, they're going to they're going to appoint Ralph Raniuk, and of course that never happened. And you look at the contrasted fortunes since then; it is quite remarkable. <laughs> <laughs> My God, that's sliding doors, isn't it? Mm. Goodness me! Does and it sounds a ridiculous question to ask about Milan here as obviously somebody who relished the great Milan teams of the late 80s and early 90s. But does winning Serie A take them to another level in terms of attracting players? I think the appeal is still there. Um, I think the problem that all Italian sides face is is, is a financial wherewithal to, to, to appeal in the way that Real Madrid and Barcelona still do, and obviously the top Premier League sides do. It's not even the top Premier League sides; it's it's Premier League sides in mid-table. <laughs> you know, if you're if you're going looking for up and coming talent in Liga, for example, you can guarantee that West Ham or or, or Leicester are going to drive the price up. That that might make it difficult for a club run as AC Milan are at the moment to do business, but certainly. You know, speaking to the the hierarchy at Milan, you know, over the last couple of years, we did that big piece about uh, about them uh, maybe in September 2020. They felt that the model to copy was Liverpool's, really, in that they felt that yeah, Liverpool hadn't won the league in 30 years. Okay, they'd, they'd won the Champions League in, in 2005, but they felt that the the brand, so to speak, was there to be reactivated. That as soon as 
they were competitive again and they started winning something again, all of a sudden, all of that appeal would come back. And, and to be honest, you see it at the moment because you know the, the fund that owns AC Milan is in talks to sell the club either to Redbird or to, to an investment fund, which is which is out of Bahrain. So clearly they feel that, um, uh, well, these, these interested parties in, in buying the club, they feel that there's, there's still room for growth within Milan, even if they were to pay upwards of a billion for it. Certainly helps that there's a sale been going on in the Premier League over the last couple of weeks for three and a half billion. Certainly makes Milan look cheap uh, when, you know, in actual fact, I think that would be probably the second most expensive acquisition in, in football history. The remarkable thing is Pioli also managed uh, Inter previously, right? Yeah. Which, yeah. if you were to place that into an English football setting, it's almost <laughs> like unfathomable, really. I mean, the idea of two clubs in the same city having the same manager, where, apart from Rafa Benitez, but how do uh, Inter fans feel about him? He was an Inter fan. <laughs> that was a big part of his, uh, his sales pitch when he got the job. Um, initially very, did very well, came uh, came in for uh, Frank de Boer. Um, you know, Frank de Boer did almost as bad at Inter as he did at Palace, um, which is which is saying something. <laughs> um, uh, and and then it all kind of it, it flamed out very quickly for him. Um, and I, I think Inter at that stage they'd just been taken over. Um, you know, he was kind of their third manager that season because Mancini walked out. Uh, always. Well, he was sacked, really, but I think there was a, a difference of opinion on how the club was going to be run. They brought in in De Boer. De Boer was terrible, um, and uh, and Pioli couldn't really live up to the expectation because Suning, and this is the great contrast between Inter and Milan in this title race, is Suning have spent a hell of a lot of money, too much money, money that they kind of no longer have, um, and you know they they had to take out an emergency loan from this uh, hedge fund at the end of last season. But um, and, and Milan are kind of low cost analytics. Let's be really efficient. But I mean, to go back to the point about Pioli, uh, Italian football fans have seen this happen so often that they 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 don't really care. Like I mean, for example, Allegri before he he went back to Juventus, you know, he could have got the Inter job had Conte warped a year earlier, um, and I don't think that would have been too much of a problem. We've seen a couple of coaches, Trapattoni over the years, Juventus. Uh, Inter and Milan, Zaccheroni. You know, they. I, I, I think after Conte went from Juventus to Inter, I mean that was that was the one that was really strange because Conte, obviously being a player captain of Juventus, someone who was really identified with that club, to go to their biggest rivals, Pioli never really had the kind of playing career. Um, you know, even even after starting his career at Juventus, that that would make it kind of a bone of contention. Uh, just a final one, and and this comes off the back of Alan Shearer sitting down with Tammy Abraham last week for the Athletic, and it also comes off talking about Milan and the success of Tamori at Milan. But it's good for British players, it's Serie A at the moment. And do you sense that there's? And I I, I deliberately say British, obviously. Do you sense there'll be another influx this summer? Yeah, because, uh, you know, I think uh, if you look at the, the rationale behind some of these signings, chapters, I mean, on the one hand, Tammy Abraham and Fikir Ayotomori are good players. But on the other hand, there's a feeling that, okay, these guys were squad players at Chelsea. You sign them. And if they do well, and there's a, there's a belief that they will do well and they have done well, you can then sell them for two or three times back to the Premier League. 
Um, certainly, I think with with Tamori, Tamori cost Milan twenty eight million, and that was probably what a summer after Manchester United had paid uh, a world record fee for a centre back for, to Leicester for Harry Maguire. Even if were Tamori to do a, an average job at Milan, they would get their money back. And instead, were they to sell him at some stage, um, yeah, they they would get a very handsome return. Uh, and, and and Tammy, I mean, Tammy was the most expensive signing in Serie A last year, forty-five million. You know, basically, I, I think he admitted to Alan Shearer that yeah, he initially his his priority was to stay in the Premier League, and then basically, Jose Mourinho sent Roma's sporting director to to London to talk to him and said, "Do not come back if you don't <laughs> sign Joseph, if you don't sign Tammy Abraham." They did sign him. And whilst that looked really expensive, you can see on the back of what Tammy's done, 25 goals in all competitions, that they would probably make their money back. Sell it. Easily. Oh. I, get, I think, I think they, they, could get, they could get six, yeah. couldn't they? Really? I would have yeah. thought. Something, something so so that's, like that. that's the cold business rationale. But in terms of being a player, I mean, it, I think one of the great things about Serie A this season, you could say about Europe in general, following football in general, is... Um, is since they've they've reopened stadiums and there's a hundred percent capacity again, and you no longer have to wear a mask when you go to a stadium. I can't remember stadiums being this full and the atmosphere being this good in Italy since kind of pre-Calciopoli. You know, there's there's a there's a real excitement, enthusiasm. I mean, the seventy thousand that were there at the Olimpico for the the semi-final of the Conference League between Roma and Leicester. I mean, that was you probably have to go back to when Roma won the league in two thousand and one. To, to see an atmosphere like that. Um, and, and, and so I, I think players looking at that, I mean, I mean, Tammy absolutely, I think, adores playing for that club and being in that city and being, you know, as he said to Alan, from going from the quote-unquote academy player to being a star, like a full-on star. Um, and, you know, Tamori to, to to plays at the other end of the pitch and centre-backs don't get the same kind of plaudits and glory as, as strikers, but... Again, you know, he's someone who is uh, is very well regarded um, in Italy, and all the all the Chelsea contingent. You know, Jeremy Bogo has been out there for a, year, for a few years. Big signing for Atalanta in January, twenty five million. Ola Aina, who's kind of come back and gone back. Um, you know, there's Ethan Ampadu, um, who's been at Venezia as well. There's a bunch of them. Maitland Niles hasn't played all that much for Roma, but you've got that kind of you've got that incredible English contingent there of Smalling. Uh, Maitland Niles and, and Tammy, so I think I think we'll just see more, more and more. You know, it's it's no longer just the Bundesliga. So I think in that sense, it's 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 an exciting destination for young English players. Good stuff, James. Thank you. Pleasure, guys. Okay, that's it. If you want to read more on all of the stories we've discussed today on The Athletic, you can subscribe now for just a pound a month. Head to theathletic.com slash football pod. I'm back on Thursday on this feed with Matt Slater for the Business of Sport podcast. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.